Hi, Henry. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thank you both for coming on the show. No oh, problem. Thanks for having us. Well, I, I just want to say how honored I feel. You both are on the show, Professor Brian Gibson especially. I, I really appreciate you taking the time for doing this. No problem, I'm happy to be here. Um, so I guess you are in the Hawaiian region right now? No, I'm actually in Washington state right now. I happen to be on leave because my wife and I just had a baby. So we're, we're just riding out COVID for another couple more weeks in Washington state. And then at the very end of this year, we're, we're going back to Hawaii. We're very excited to go back. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you're teaching online the entire time. No, I'm actually on leave. That was very fortunate. I was able to, to take uh, a semester off. Uh, yeah. I have to pay back yeah. all the courses that I didn't teach. So oh, no. really? a bit more of really? a deferment. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have a parental leave? This is the parental leave. Oh man. You got to pay for your own. Oh, yep. come back to Canada. Uh, that's what literally every single person I talk to says. <laughs> I can imagine. But, yeah. But then again, I'm in Hawaii. So it's, it's one of that. Like, this is true. Yeah. But when you go back in January, are you teaching online or are you teaching in person? A bit of both, mostly okay. online. Okay. Like uh, my master's classes are online. I have one undergrad class that is in person, but it's not bad. Okay. Yeah. Cause we're, we're completely online. We were online all semester and we'll be online next semester as well. We, you know, we took a, a safe route and uh, you know, except for the, the bitching and complaining by some of my colleagues who suddenly had to reprep courses. Also it's a shrunk schedule. We're down to 12 weeks as opposed to 16 weeks semester. So everything's oh, wow. been condensed. Yeah, everything's been condensed. So it's a different environment, but it's fun. And, you know, we get a chance to do something like this with Henry, because to be honest yeah. with you, I'm not sure whether we'd be doing this if it wasn't for COVID. <laughs> yeah. So there's your silver lining. So Henry, go ahead. Welcome to the podcast. Um, you're our fourth and fifth guest, respectively. And um, well, um, how about uh, you present yourself first and then we'll start talking about our topic today. So my name is Dr. Brian Gibson. I hold a PhD in international history from the London School of Economics. I did my master's and undergrad at the University of Ottawa, much like Professor O'Keefe over here. Although I don't know if you did your undergrad at University of Ottawa, but anyways, so I, my area of specialty is US foreign policy in the Middle East. I've written two books on the, the subject. My area of specific focus is Iraq, where I have done a lot of research on the relationship between the United States and the Iraqi government, the Kurdish government in the north, who are a kind of a de facto state, and then the Iranian government. So I'm very clued into all three of those those entities. Okay, um, and I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm Professor David O'Keefe. I teach at Marianopolis College. Like Brian, I too went to Ottawa U, but my undergrad was at uh, Concordia and McGill. And, um, and then I ended up at Ottawa U for my graduate studies. There was a brief moment where it looked like I would be going to Cambridge and then, well, I didn't. So I ended up working. That's what I was working with Dr. Brian Villa. My background is World War II, military and intelligence studies. Uh, basically, that's my background in that. So there you go. That's a fun area to be focused on because I, I am looking at foreign policy, but also intelligence operations and things like that But in the Middle East, in the yeah. Cold War era. So 
uh, there's a, a little bit of overlap right there between the two of us. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, uh, first question for um, Professor Gibson. So, what made you go into Middle East as a study? My very first day of university was September 11th, 2001. Wow. So I woke up that morning, ready to go to class. It was a Thursday. Well, I think classes started on Wednesday, and I wasn't there. But I woke up on the morning of 9/11 and saw the the tower, well, the second tower fall, and that changed the the course of my life. There's not a lot. Of, I know a lot of people say it's kind of a cliche, or 9/11 changed my life. But I went into the University of Ottawa studying criminology and wanted to be a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, much to my wife's displeasure. Uh, so I decided to become interested in history. I started looking at the history of uh, the Middle East because right after 9-11 happened, invasion of Iraq happened in March of 2003. And the whole lead up to that was my undergrad. So I was very, very clued into what was going on in the Middle East and very passionate about learning more. And in the lead up to uh, Iraq war, there was a lot of talk about weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And so I became very curious about this issue and started digging into it more and more and started looking at the Iran-Iraq War, which occurred between 1980 and 1988. And that was when Iraq used chemical weapons and biological weapons on a regular basis. I, immediately, I was drawn to this issue of the United States' relationship with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. And the more and more I dug into it, the more and more I found that it was a fascinating subject, but also something that people hadn't really researched. And when you're someone who's interested in history, like myself, when you find a topic that has been understudied, you get very excited. <laughs> because that means that you have something that you can latch onto and do a lot of research, and then you're essentially paving new historical roads uh, into the wilderness of, of the subject. And that excited me. Compared to criminology, which I found in, enjoyable, my interest in history and my interest in learning more about Iraq and learning more about Iran and the Kurds and the Israelis, just it just gave me a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement. And th these were topics that some of them have been studied a lot, but others really hadn't. That's why I got into studying the Middle East. I ended up writing my master's thesis on the Iran-Iraq war and that issue of, of chemical weapons. Uh, and then my PhD thesis was on a war that occurred in Iraq between 1960 and 1975 that was between the Iraqi government and the Kurds. Hmm. So that's that's how I got kind of drawn into this this area. That definitely makes sense because I'm interested in the Middle East mainly due to the fact that we don't talk about them basically at all in the mainstream media or very hard for us to find resources on the Middle East. So I, I have this personal interest due to my ignorance on the Middle East as a topic. I want to bring us back a little bit. I want to go into some area of expertise maybe perhaps uh, Professor O'Keefe would be more interested in, is, that is Middle East after the Second World War. How was it? Uh, so w what was this declining in colonialism? How did it, did it shape the mi Middle East after World War II? Okay, that's a huge question. <laughs> that's a huge, huge question. question. And um, well, to be honest with you, I'd probably defer to, to Brian on this one, just simply because that seems to be more of his specialty on this. I mean, 
you know, the basics, you're, you're, you have a world in flux. You have the creation of Israel in 1948, uh, I guess it was, but they were already putting the mechanisms in place for this, which then um, in some ways, I would argue, reshuffles the deck in the Middle East. But at the same time, you still have the traditional colonial powers. And I say traditional, traditional for the last 20 or 30 years when it comes to the British and the French that are still in the area. Plus, you also have the emergence of the United States on the foreign policy front and, of course, the reality of the Cold War. And maybe, you know, by setting that up, maybe Brian can sort of take the torch from there and continue on. Yeah, the aftermath of the Second World War is a really important period for the Middle East. But the aftermath of the First World War was arguably more important because this is when uh, the Middle East had largely not been a colonial uh, area. Uh, it had been left alone because the Ottoman Empire controlled the region. The British and the French had been kind of nipping at the Ottoman Empire and seeking to take control over some of their territory. Like the British took control of Egypt in 1882. But in the aftermath, the Ottoman Empire collapsed and suddenly all of these, let's say, quote unquote, states or mandates were thrust into existence. And they hadn't existed before as entities. So that meant that these states didn't have government. They might have had a provincial sort of government, but that would be like Quebec suddenly getting independence tomorrow, mm. or Ontario, or Alberta, or other states. Like They're prepared to be regional states, but when you start dealing with foreign affairs and defense, but also local education and stuff like that, they were just completely unprepared. And that's why the British and the French proposed this mandate system, or at least so it seemed. The reality was that the British and the French were seeking to control these states as colonial uh, mandates. Like, they wanted control of them. They wanted control of the products they produced, especially oil. Now, go. fast forward to the creation of, uh, sorry, the aftermath of World War II. These states were just starting to, to figure out how to do things. Some of them had gained nominal independence, but the, the British were more willing to give leeway to the local powers. But the French absolutely were not. The French were very heavy-handed, and they dominated. It was called direct colonial rule. So it was ruled from Paris. So when uh, Israel was created, Israel was kind of viewed as not so much a colony because they were independent, but they were viewed as a Western enterprise. So they were more aligned ideologically with the West, with British and, uh, and French and uh, even the Americans. And but for the region, this completely upended everything, and it still is upended today. So you have for, between 1947-48 through till 1970 at least. Actually, I would say even beyond, but 1970 especially. You have a region that has been completely turned upside down where these independent states, they overthrow monarchies that are backed by the British and French governments, and, and radical nationalists. Uh, regimes come to power. Now, th there's a concept called Arab nationalism, which, uh, in a grand scheme of things, is like it's kind of like uh, you know Quebecois uh, and the, the separatist movement uh, in a sense. And they actually kind of draw from the same influences, which is quite interesting. But this Arab concept of Arab nationalism is the idea that all of the Arab states should form a union, an Arab union, that would essentially be more like the European Union or the United States, where they become a country of their own. Now, this idea was uh, really put forward by Gamal Abdel Nasser, who seized power. Uh, well, he was involved in a coup in Egypt in 1952. And that's really kind of a turning point right there. 1952, uh, a group of military officers overthrows this super, 
incredibly corrupt regime, uh, government, and monarchy. And they all take off and steal billions of dollars and uh, leave the treasury empty. And so Nasser and his colleagues come to power, and they implement a radical new form of government where it's driven by opportunism, it's driven by uh, ideology, but not, I mean, not in the same sense as, as, it, uh, as one might think. When you're looking at the ideology, they want to put Arabs first. They see Israel as a really big problem. They see the Palestinians, who are Arabs, they see them as being uh, kicked off their land. They see them as being, uh, for those who stayed behind, being subjugated by a foreign power. Uh, because a lot, a lot of the people who ran Israel in the aftermath were born in Europe or in Russia. So they had Western education, and they're coming in with a lot of advantages that the local Palestinians just absolutely did not have. So there was a real imbalance there. And the Israelis beat the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Iraqis and the Syrians and the Lebanese in a fight in 1948 single-handedly with very little help from the outside. The real turning point in the Middle East was the Suez Crisis in 1956. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details about why that happened because it's very complicated, mm. but this moment stands out as the death knell of British and French colonies. So the two of them conspired with the Israelis to regain control of the Suez Canal, which the Egyptians, being Egyptian and seeing it as theirs and not a foreign entity, they nationalized it. They took control of it. They said, this is ours. This created a big crisis because the French and the British weren't willing to let this happen because a lot of their colonial cargo traffic passed through the Suez Canal instead of going around all of Africa, which is absolutely massive. They conspired with the Israelis for the Israelis to attack Egypt, and then the British and the French would invade Egypt as peacekeepers, quote-unquote. But this didn't fool anyone. Everyone saw this as being a colonial, an act of colonial aggression. And so the Americans got really upset, and they threatened to withdraw Marshall Fund money for reconstruction of Europe uh, in the aftermath of World War II. They were like, we're going to cut you off if you don't pull out right now. And so the British and the French had to leave Egypt because the Americans forced them to. And what became very clear right there, then and there, was that the British and the French were no longer major powers. Uh, they had been surpassed by the United States, which was a superpower. When you have the United States flexing its muscles against the British and the French, who 10 years earlier were the most powerful nations in the world, and now they're very clearly not, this changed everything. Nasser, who lost the battle militarily, they, they, the Egyptians got uh, defeated thoroughly, but because the Americans ended up coming to their aid and Nasser survived, he was a hero. And throughout the entire Middle East from 1956 through to Nasser's death in 1970 was an era known as the Arab Cold War. And what you got here was an interesting mixture where Egypt served as essentially one of the, the powers and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and these other conservative monarchies, initially Iraq until the revolution in 1958, so just two years later. So you get this dynamic where you have these Arab nationalist regimes like Nasser, who is seeking to unite everyone, fighting against these uh, and using like covert operations and propaganda and any means of subverting the other powers. Um, 
you have Nasser doing this. And that's upsetting the other powers who are then trying to do the same thing to him back. And so you get this interesting dynamic where the two sides are kind of uh, fighting each other, but never directly, use, usually using proxies, uh, which are uh, forces that aren't directly controlled by Egypt, but work for them. They have the same uh, goals in mind, right? So it, it's a fascinating dynamic that leads to situations like uh, there was a massive war in Yemen uh, between 1962 and 1968. Now, that was—Egyptian sol soldiers fought in that because Arab nationalists had overthrown the monarchy, but the monarchy survived— and joined uh, forces with the Saudi Arabians and the Arab nationalists who came to power there joined forces with Nasser. And so you just get this really nasty, nasty uh, fight in, in Yemen, uh, which is a very mountainous country. So it's not easy ter terrain to fight in. And so this brutal war takes place where chemical weapons are used and the Soviets end up backing the nationalists and the Americans end up backing the Saudis. The Israelis end up backing the Saudis secretly, but... They were doing it. So it's a really fascinating dynamic. But then the Six-Day War happens in June 1967 when the Israelis thoroughly defeat the Egyptians and the Syrians uh, and the Jordanians single-handedly in six days. Like um, in the first, I think, five hours of the war, the Egyptian Air Force was completely wiped out. Um, and there's a fascinating, fun intelligence operation that uh, – if you would like me to tell you about it, I can tell you. Uh, does that interest you at all, Henry? Okay, so in the lead-up to the Six-Day War, for about six months prior, the Israeli Air Force would take off from its air bases and would uh, you know, take off into the air, and it would fly directly towards Egypt. But that, the very last second, so the first time, of course, the Egyptian um, you know, defenses, their air defenses are freaking out because the Israeli Air Force looks like they're coming to attack them. Uh, but at the last second, the Israelis turned away and went back out to sea. And they did that every day for six months. And on the sixth day, sorry, after the six months was up, and it was time to invade uh, and attack Egypt, they didn't turn away. So over the course of six months, the Egyptian Air Defense Command got used to seeing these Israeli pilots flying towards them and then turning away. But then on that fateful day, they didn't turn away. They suddenly kicked it into high gear and flew into Israel, uh, sorry, it flew into Egypt and began bombing targets and taking out their entire air force. And they were complete, caught completely off guard. So they had been blinded by this very, very clever intelligence operation that the Israeli air force pulled off. Essentially, what this does is it underscores the preemptive nature of what Israel foreign policy was like at the time. In other words, Israel knows that it's sitting in a very delicate situation, and it may be that they have to strike out at the giant before the giant takes them out. And the interesting link here, and I think, you know, Brian, maybe you can jump on this too, is, you know, there, there seems to be some very strong parallels between this and the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which then leads up into or into the Iraq War of 2003. Yep. Preemption is key. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, someone like Wolfowitz would look to Israeli with a lot of admiration and uh, in, in the nature of their uh, very aggressive foreign policy uh, and military policy as well. 
Now, a key thing to remember about the Israelis is that they, long, long, long ago, so right after the 1948 war, adopted a policy called disproportionate retaliation. So if an attack is, uh, so say a group of Palestinian uh, guerrillas launch an attack against uh, an Israeli town and kill one person, the Israelis will turn around and attack a Palestinian town or an Arab town and kill as many people as they can. So one person might die in the Palestinian attack and 30 might die in the Israeli attack. Because what they're trying to do is establish deterrence, which is saying, don't attack us or it's going to be worse that's coming back at you. So it's a very fascinating dynamic. And so this whole situation with the Six-Day War, now the Egyptians lost the, the Six-Day War and Nasser tried to try to resign, but the, the people love him. So they love, love, love him. Uh, millions of people went out in the street all crying, being like, no, 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 you have to, there's pictures of it, it's fascinating. Um, no, 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 you need to stay in power. And so Nasser agreed, but he dies three years later. Uh, he has a heart attack on the tarmac of the Egyptian, the Cairo airport, after he had actually resolved a very significant uh, crisis in Jordan where uh, the Jordanian military slaughtered the Palestinians that were living in Jordan kicked them out to Lebanon, which destroyed Lebanon, frankly, uh, in the aftermath of that. But that's a very, very, very complex story right there. Uh, in the aftermath of World War II, what you're seeing is, is this fascinating dynamic between the Arab nationalists on the one side, led by Nasser, and the reactionary or conservative monarchies uh, largely led by the Saudi Arabians. Initially, it was led by the, by the Iraqis, but after the revolution there, the center of gravity for the conservatives shifted to Saudi Arabia. So uh, a really interesting dynamic, uh, of course, then there's the whole 1973 yeah. war, where the objective there on the part of the Egyptians was to literally prove to the Israelis that they could be defeated in battle. And the Egyptians successfully pulled that off in the first uh, couple days of the 1973 war. But the Israelis eventually gained the upper hand, actually thanks to an American spy plane that flew over the battle lines and spotted a gap in the Egyptian defenses through which Ariel Sharon, who later ended up being prime minister of, uh, of, of Israel, uh, he poured his forces through that gap, surrounded the Egyptian third army and captured it, capturing uh, well over 100,000 troops uh, and all their equipment and bringing the war to a stalemate. Now in the aftermath of that, Henry Kissinger, who is the famous Secretary of State, uh, negotiated a series of disengagement agreements with the, between the Egyptians and the Israelis, which led to the two of them talking to each other. Mm. Now, in talking to each other, this set the stage for the Camp David Agreement, which uh, led to a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. Uh, a similar disengagement process occurred with Syria, and later on, peace agreement was reached with Egypt. Sorry, sorry, with Jordan. Um, now, the Jordanians and the Israelis had always been quite close, uh, but that was kept kind of below the surface. So uh, it's a, a really fascinating dynamic, and that's just up to the 70s. Uh, <laughs> we're getting into the, the 1980s and, and more present, yeah, but yeah. I, I'm going to open this up to, to some more questions so that I'm just not giving a lecture on the Middle East. Well, um, was, uh, if it were a lecture, I would definitely continue to listen to it. So... How how does this dynamic and leading up to these peace treaties that the King David Accord and uh, peace with Jordan and Egypt leads to 
how how did all this came to 1911? So we need to expand the scope a little bit and look at Afghanistan. So the 1980s was a really really chaotic period uh, for the Middle East. On the one hand, uh, you have the the Iranian Revolution in 1979, which overthrew a very very close ally of the United States in the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Now Iranian history is deeply complicated. Um, uh, in 1950, sorry, in 1941, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi's father was overthrown by an invasion of the British and the French. Uh, sorry, the British and the Soviets, which uh, overthrew his father and put him in place when he was, uh, you know, in his early 20s. So he was a pretty weak king at first, but he had very grand desi designs. He wanted to become a very powerful, powerful leader. Uh, but the problem with Iran in the aftermath of World War II between 1942 and 1953 was Iran was a very functioning parliamentary democracy. Uh, leaders came to power. They were elected. They have experience with, with elections in Iran. A guy came to power named Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh's a fascinating, fascinating character. I can't believe there isn't a movie about him yet. But this gentleman would wear pajamas and walk around the street and would kind of act aloof, but was a very, very, very brilliant. It was all done in a way to kind of throw off his adversaries and uh, for have them to underestimate his, uh, his genius. He hated the British. Iranian oil from 1907 had been owned by the British government. Uh, and when the British government transferred all of its navy to oil, Iran was the main provider of it. Now, the Anglo-Iranian Petroleum Company, which today we know as BP or British Petroleum, uh, was created in, in order to facilitate the the oil acquisition. Mohammad Mossadegh was like, well, that's not your oil. Uh, kind of like we talked about Nasser and the nationalization of the Suez Canal. Well, in 1951, uh, the Iranians nationalized its oil industry, and this created a huge crisis. The British got very upset because they lost one of their only sources of, re of real revenue in the aftermath of World War II, because Britain was destroyed in World War II, much like the rest of Europe. But all this oil coming from Iran, Britain was making a fortune off it. Because the government controlled the company and got 51% of its profits. So every time someone fills up at the pump using Anglo-Iranian oil, Britain gets a chunk of that into its coffers, which it can use to help reconstruct the country. So when they seized control of this, the British lost their minds and tried to overthrow uh, Mossadegh, and it didn't work. And Mossadegh kicked them out of the country, leading to the British turning to the Americans and saying, hey, he's a communist, because that worked back then. He wasn't a communist. I mean, he was uh, a member of the royal family that got overthrown by the Shah's father. So, like, he was he was a conservative, he, but he hated the British, and that was enough to spook the Americans into overthrowing him in 1953, August 53. And so he was overthrown in a coup, and the power of the parliament was reduced, and the power of the king, or the Shah's, uh, was massively increased and between 1953 and 1979 he consolidated power more and more and more and more in his own hands and parliament still exists it's called the majlis but it was kind of a rubber stamp parliament so whatever he said they were like yep okay that's gonna be law and so he ruled like kind of like a dictator but he was king uh, or an absolute monarch where he, he couldn't make wrong decisions right the Shah was really fascinating, but when he got overthrown in 1978, 1979 by 
the Iranian people, and it's not just like uh, radical Islamists, they were just one faction. There were communists, there were uh, liberals, there were conservatives, there were students who were just like, didn't like the fact that they knew people who had been kidnapped and tortured by his regime because they had opposed him or spoke out against him. So you have this uh, amalgamation of just people who don't like the Shah and want him to go. And they protest again and again and again throughout 1978. And in January 1979, he leaves. So when he leaves, this power vacuum where all these different groups that all had one agenda, which was to get rid of the Shah, suddenly realize they don't agree on anything other than that. But the most powerful of them was Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who was uh, a vocal, vocal, vocal opponent of the Shah and had been kicked out of the country in the 1970s, or the mid-1970s, and lived in Iraq for a time and then moved uh, to uh, Paris, where he continued to just speak out against the Shah. And so he was viewed as the leader. And so when he returned, he seized control of the state, uh, forced through a constitution that gave him essentially the same powers as the Shah. And... Uh, but they do have a parliamentary system. So elections are held in Iran still to this day. In 2009, they were disputed because there was some shady stuff that went on. But Iran is actually uh, a pseudo-democratic state, which a lot of people don't realize. Uh, uh, the Republican Party in the United States in particular does not realize that Iran has elections, even though their elections are quite publicly known. Um, now, what's fascinating about this this period is that because the Shah was so powerful and was so reliant on the United States for weapons and for training and for intelligence support, when he was overthrown, the United States lost a very important ally. And this also meant that the new regime that came into power viewed the military and the intelligence service and anything that was tied to the United States as being uh, essentially tied to the Shah. And so they started to eliminate them. Now, a lot of this was arrests, but they also killed a lot of people, and they started to purge the military because the Shah was a big kind of military guy, even though he never served in the military in his life. Uh, so what was really important was that Iran suddenly, which was easily the most powerful nation in the region except for Israel, but Iran also has like millions and millions of people, and the Israelis do not. Uh, so Iran would have had, at this point, probably 40 to 50 million people, and they have about 80 million today. So Iran was huge, and it suddenly flipped into this kind of, uh, it kind of became a, a basket case, a really crazy country with policies that were very radical and very unpredictable. Um, and they didn't follow the rules that most states follow. For example, they had no problem kidnapping American citizens in Beirut and holding them hostage. Um, they held the American uh, embassy hostage for 444 days. Think about that. That's way longer than a year. 444 days. They held uh, American diplomats hostage in, in their embassy. Um, they, that ruined Jimmy Carter's presidency. So what does all of this have to do with Afghanistan? <laughs> Which is the kind of focal point of the question that you asked. Well, right around the time of the Iranian Revolution and this hostage crisis, which made the United States look very, very, very weak, uh, this is probably the lowest point in American power up to probably today, where the United States looked weak. 
And the Soviet Union, who in the Cold War was the United States opponent, recognized this and invaded Afghanistan. Now, the Soviet Union, its ideology is atheist. So it doesn't believe in God. Uh, the state doesn't, like as a matter of national policy. So an atheist state is invading a Muslim territory uh, and waged a very, very brutal war against the local population who were resisting. Now, this resistance was known as the Mujahideen. Now, Iran is falling apart. Iran and Afghanistan are neighbors. Iran is falling apart. And in 1980, in September 1980, Iraq, recognizing that Iran is weak, decides to invade and tries to seize control of its oil-producing region, but isn't successful. This leads to an eight-year-long, absolutely vicious, World War I-style war between the Iranians, who, now that they don't have their American patron, don't really have modern weapons. So they're fighting with Molotov cocktails, handguns, AK-47s that they could get, M-16s that they could get, and other, like... Uh, not particularly sophisticated weaponry. They initially had sophisticated weaponry, but after long, you start using your howitzers and bombs and things like that, you run out of them, and then you need something else. The Iraqis, on the other hand, are aligned with the Soviet Union, and they're armed to the teeth with the most sophisticated Soviet weaponry available. So what we saw throughout this war was every spring, the Iranians would get about 300,000 troops armed with these handguns and machine guns, and they would throw them en masse against the Iraqi defenses. So think about that. 300,000 people all charging Braveheart style against these sophisticated weapons who are just cutting them down. So the war was a stalemate, but every year the same spring offensive happened, and every year hundreds of thousands of people got uh, either killed or injured in the fighting. So Iraq and Iran are against each other, and the Americans end up backing the Iraqis because the Iraqis are opposed to the Iranians, and the Iranians are opposed to the Americans. It's a classic example of the, my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? Uh, which is it's interesting to see that actually play out in real life. So this crazy situation is happening there where this war is going on, and the Americans are looking very weak. And so the Soviets invade Afghanistan next door, and then they get trapped in a Vietnam-style war where the United States, uh, through the CIA and via Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, began supporting Mujahideen. Now, one of these Mujahideen uh, is a man known, or was a man known as Osama bin Laden. Now, bin Laden ended up getting... Uh, he worked with the CIA, in, in as did all the Mujahideen in fighting the Soviets, but he learned a lot of his tradecraft while fighting the Soviets, uh, I think from 1986 to 1989. Uh, and after the war was over, uh, because there's a thing in, in Islam where um, people talk about holy war, right? But there's a couple of different types. One of them is called classical jihad. And what this means is that uh, if a non-Muslim power invades a Muslim land, it is the obligation of Muslims to defend uh, the Islamic community known as the Ummah. Now, this is uh, really important because when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, they invaded the Ummah. So all of these Arab Muslims uh, and others went to 
Afghanistan to fight as part of the Mujahideen. But when, as part of the the classical jihad doctrine, when the war is over, you go home. You have done your duty, you go home, and it's over. But the problem for bin Laden is that he wasn't done. Uh, not long after the war in, in Afghanistan ended, the uh, Iraqis, uh, having won the Iran-Iraq War in 1988, they defeated the Iranians, uh, they invaded Kuwait. Now, Kuwait has a lot of oil, and it's, it's, it's situated very close to the Saudi oil field. Now, to the Americans, they could not... Uh, one of their long-standing policies since the 1950s was that no one single state can dominate the oil production in the Middle East. So if Iraq invades Kuwait and then invades Saudi Arabia, it controls roughly 40% of the world's oil supply, and it can dictate the price at that point. So that's really important. So the Americans were terrified that the Iraqis were going to uh, push further south into Saudi Arabia, and so and the Saudis were equally terrified of this, but the Saudis does, Saudi Arabia does not have a very strong military. So it called on the United States to defend its military. Now, this meant putting non-Muslim forces on Muslim territory. And so bin Laden saw that as a violation of uh, that. This is an instance where jihad is, again, necessary. Now, the Americans are also fighting against Iraqis who are Muslim. So you see how that, that works in bin Laden's mind. So in the mid-1990s, he issued uh, a fatwa, or a religious decree, declaring jihad against the Americans. Now, then you see attacks against the USS Cole, USS, USSS Cole, um, which killed several Americans. And then in 1998, you see the twin bombings of the American embassies uh, in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, I think it was Tanzania. I can't remember specifically off the top of my head, but they, they attacked two American embassies in Africa. And then not long after that, 9-11 occurred. So you have this series of attacks that lead up to 9-11, which are a product of bin Laden seeking to take the fight beyond the Ummah to the Americans. Now this ushered in a new form of jihad known as global jihad. Now, this is what ISIS buys into. This is what Al-Qaeda is, uh, well, Al-Qaeda originated it. And you see the emergence of these groups that start launching terrorist attacks in the United States now, oh, and in Europe. Now, terrorist attacks and terrorism and that, those types of operations are not unique. They happened a lot in the 1970s in particular by uh, Palestinian terrorist groups, uh, most famously at Munich in 1972. But uh, the nature, but the Palestinians were secular. Uh, they're like, uh, they believe in the separation of church and state. It's not Islamic terrorism. It's not seeking to, uh, to bring the war, the jihad, to the West. It is merely retaliating against the Israelis for actions that the Israelis have taken against, uh, you know, Palestinians. So it's a very, very, very specific form of terrorism that was going on there. Bin Laden's form is a lot more indiscriminate. And he is also killing, uh, he's killing Muslims. 
uh, between 2003 and 2007, uh, Al-Qaeda waged a war inside Saudi Arabia that didn't get a lot of publicity because everyone was paying attention to the much bigger war that was taking place in Iraq during that time. So you have a really fascinating dynamic going on. Um, but so you can see how, how history in the Middle East really matters. It resonates. It, it, actions from decades ago can blow back and turn into something much worse. So who would have thought in 1986 that uh, teaching bin Laden some of the CIA statecraft would eventually blow back and lead to the death of 3,000 Americans. Who would have thought that teaching bin Laden these tricks would then lead to not just 9-11 and the other terrorist attacks, but then the emergence of al-Qaeda in Iraq because of the American invasion, and then that formed the Islamic State. Like So you can see a direct link between these actions in the 1980s which at the time were very much designed just to defeat the Soviet Union. But the blowback, uh, it's kind of like when you're, you're sitting around a campfire and the smoke changes direction and it's in your face and you're, it's really unpleasant. That's what blowback means. It's an action that you took earlier ends up creating problems for you later. So I'm wondering, I mean, I, I'll jump in here. I mean, what you're talking about now, I mean, if we go back to it and we want to put down something as the center of gravity in all this. Um, sometimes it comes across as being trite, but it is oil. It is yeah. the natural resource, because I've certainly seen that when I teach my first world war course, the emerging historiography is now really focusing on the British and to a lesser extent, the French, but really the British towards the end of World War One, making efforts. Um, not so much because they're interested in defeating the Germans. They're trying to keep the Germans from getting their hands on the Middle, Middle East oil. As you mentioned before, you know, you've got 1907 uh, where, you know, the British economy is now switching towards that. The, all, yeah. the entire Navy has switched to oil. Yeah, in 1913 oil. it switched. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right there. And then you certainly see it with, the, with uh, British foreign policy towards the end of the First World War, the creation of something called Dunster Force which yeah. was a multinational force with, well, multinational, a British Empire force um, that ended up fighting up all the way through the Middle East and into the Baku region of Russia, uh, specifically to secure oil-rich resources for the British. So it seems to be something that transcends even the concept of politics, of nationalism, etc. They're going straight for those resources. And to me, um, you know, seeing that from the perspective of world war one that seems to be the continuity throughout everything in the middle east is the well, value of world war ii uh, if hitler had gotten baku yeah would the war have ended the way that it did it, i mean it's that, that's a big question um uh, because right, oil is really important it, it was absolutely essential to world war ii uh you can't have these massive uh like squadrons of planes going and bombing. Uh, you can't have the Battle of Britain if you don't have planes, and if you don't have the oil to fly those planes. Um, so yeah, it, it's really it's very important, and it's still important today because, uh, for example, you can look at the American relationship with Saudi Arabia. The relationship with the Saudis shouldn't be like it is. If Saudi Arabia did not have oil, Saudi Arabia would be a non-existent um, backwater in the Middle East, because 
the Saudis don't have anything other than oil and sand and sunlight. Uh, I guess if they, uh, they're working on developing their solar systems, but yeah, like, uh, it's, there's not a lot there. It's a barren, barren desert. So, uh, oil matters and it, it defines the relationships that we have. And you can see in the actions of the Saudis presently, that and they're going to be very concerned about the election of Joe Biden, because uh, under Obama you started to see the Americans being much more critical of the Saudis because the Americans had suddenly switched in 2011 to being an oil exporting nation as opposed to an oil importing nation, and this meant that the United States doesn't really need the Saudis to the same extent that they used to, and the Saudis have recognized that. That's why they're backing uh, hardcore militias. That's why they're terrified about the prospect of the United States developing a better relationship with Iran, which we started to get a glimpse of towards the end of the Obama presidency, which might very well reset itself with Biden. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics at play. Um, And the Saudis are frankly terrified, uh, and so are the UAE and um, who else? Bahrain. Uh, and they've all recently signed peace agreements. Well, the Saudis haven't, but Bahrain and UAE have signed peace agreements with Israel. Israel, yeah. You're seeing you're seeing a, a Cold War dynamic emerging again in the Middle East, uh, kind of like during Nasser's time, but this time uh, it's Iran versus the Saudi Arabians, uh, and it's Sunni versus Shia, and it, it's uh, it's a sectarian Cold War yeah. um, that is quite dangerous. Um, yeah, I think so, that's yeah. really what, what what sort of denotes this as one of the most unique regions, I suppose, historically speaking, is that multi-layering of all the imperatives, whether it be oil, whether it be nationalism, or, you know, even religious, you know, religious issues. And that's something that's very difficult for most historians, let alone students, to sort of disentangle to get to, to get down to anything, really. Well, and I hope that in chatting with Henry and, and you today that, that that's what we're, we're going to be able to do is that we can at least help some of the people who listen to this get a better understanding of just how unbelievably complex uh, the situation is. And Lebanon, uh, which we barely touched on, and I'm not going to get into it because it's a mess, but Lebanon has uh, probably 20 or 30 different uh, religions and sects that all have different interests and there's different ethnic groups there as well it's it's a complete mosaic of different religions and cultures in this one uh extraordinarily tiny country um and they've just barely made it work it worked for a little while and then it fell apart and then it worked for a little bit and then it fell apart very badly from 1975 to 1990 when it was a massive civil war and even now it's still uh, extremely complicated yeah any more questions you know, it's it's very interesting yeah. that you bring that up because, you know, you, you I mean, Henry, you're talking to two historians here and historians deal with access to archives and our evidence. And my job, I would argue, is a bit easier than Brian's because Brian is dealing with the contemporary world and it's very difficult to get the kind of information we need uh, in the contemporary world out of uh, various institutions that obviously, uh, when it comes to intelligence, for instance, want to protect their sources and their methods, and justifiably so. 
Um, so in this case, and maybe we can just shift, um, we talked about briefly about the, the concept of weapons of mass destruction being used as a pretext for the 2000 invasion of a uh, 2003 invasion, excuse me, of Iraq. But we all know that there was no leg to stand on when it, when it came to that, that was used just as a pretext for it. What is, in your opinion, the end game for going in? Is it a question of just trying to put the United States back on solid footing after a, a so-called emasculating event at 9-11? Uh, is it a question of just trying to go it alone and, and, and show the world the kind of doctrine they're about to use? Was it the possibility of if they created something in Iraq, um, some sort of regime change in Iraq, that somehow something organic may spring up in Iran and there would be a domino effect? What are your thoughts? Um, so the problem with the invasion of Iraq is that it was rooted in profound ignorance, uh, which is shocking because the State Department understand Iraq, the uh, CIA absolutely understand Iraq, even the Department of Defense understands Iraq. But the ideologues that were in the White House at the time, they and Bush is, is one of them, uh, they believed that if they could go into Iraq and knock out a regime like Saddam, who they believed posed a threat to all of its neighbors, especially Israel and Saudi Arabia, that they could establish a democratic government there that could be a beacon unto the rest of the Middle East that would uh, lead to something like the Arab Spring uh, and topple all of these dictators and, and create a democratic uh, system throughout the region. Problem is, they didn't understand Iraq. Now, Iraq is divided very quite evenly, not evenly, but uh, qu quite cleanly between the Shia, which are 55% of the population, the Kurds, which are 25% of the population, and the Sunnis, which are the remaining 20, or 19 or 18, and there's a smattering of smaller little groups in there as well, but they're, they're tiny, like the Yazidis and the Christians or the Chaldeans. Um, so what you have going on in Iraq is a dynamic where, uh, it, think of it like a tent with three poles. And so there's three poles holding up the tent, and Saddam Hussein was the linchpin holding it all together, or he was the main pole. And you pull him out, and that whole tent comes collapsing down. Because he had, he, A, he was Sunni, so the Sunni uh, portion of the population supported him because obviously they benefited from him being in power. The Shia, which is the majority, are were suppressed, were uh, treated very poorly by the Saddam Hussein regime, and the Kurds were also treated very poorly and were subjected to genocide. So you have these two groups who are being dominated by the third smallest group, and so when the third smallest group got knocked out of play, then and a system of democracy is put in, in, in place, well, uh, Mill long ago said that democracy is the tyranny of the majority. And when you have 55% of your population being Shia, who have spent uh, the better part of a century being treated very poorly by the Sunnis, well, they're going to want to seek revenge. They want to impose that tyranny. And anyone who knew anything about Iraq knew that that was going to happen. And uh, so for me, I, I've long thought that 
partitioning it would be uh, a better system or make uh, adopting a more Canadian style uh, decentralized state mm. where uh, where the federal government in Baghdad is in charge of defense and foreign affairs and oil policy and stuff like that. And then everything else is distributed evenly between the, the three uh, populations or provinces. If it's three provinces, then you have a, a Kurdish one, a Sunni one, and a Shia one. And then Baghdad could be like the uh, the national capital uh, province or center or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, I always thought that was actually one way that you're actually going to, to keep uh, a reasonable degree of, of stability inside Iraq, but that, that hasn't happened. And so when you're looking at, at the invasion of Iraq and you're looking at these three groups, like it was a foregone conclusion that this was not going to go as well as the Bush administration uh, believed that it would. So, uh, and it led to things that were, were pretty obvious. It, it was pretty obvious that ethnic cleansing was going to take place. It was pretty obvious that the, that the Shia were going to uh, crack down on the Sunnis very hard and treat them uh, like they won, and they did. And that led to uh, an insurgency against the Americans, but also a, a Sunni insurgency against the Americans and the Shia. And then you have these wild cards like uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, led by uh, uh, Zarqawi, who was uh, you know, a pupil of Osama bin Laden's, uh, who waged an absolutely brutal terrorist campaign against the Shia uh, he, he bombed uh, one of their holiest uh, sites, which led to a civil war in the mid-2000s, uh, which resulted in uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people being killed. Uh, American soldiers were t completely caught in the middle, and then you had to get the surge of American troops back into Iraq in order to calm things down. And so, it, yeah, it, when you look at it, it the original impetus was uh, they, they knew... They knew Saddam was a bad guy. They knew that he was a problem and that he posed a threat to the region. And they believed, they genuinely believed that going in there and taking him out was going to be, um, that they were going to be greeted as liberators and that everyone was going to love them. And that just wasn't the case. Yeah, I, th I think part of it, I mean, that strikes me here is when they went in, it was so short-sighted in the sense that they did not go in with a Marshall Plan. In other words, there was nothing there to help rebuild Iraq, let alone the Middle East. And they wanted out. Exactly. And if you're not going, if you're going to go in and bang the door down, you have to be able to rebuild the house. So everybody yeah. then moves away from dependency on these kind of factions who are the only ones that on a local scale can generally provide that kind of safety and security. And it sounds a little strange. But that's exactly what these kind of warlord mentalities do. They, they, they give you the false sense of security that, you know, it's, it's you're with us or against us and you've got to pick a side. It's kind of like being in prison and you've got to pick a gang to survive. But if there that's is... That's um, exactly it. Yeah. And if there's a, you know, if, if the United States goes in and they're quite serious about going up, and I've always argued this when it comes to foreign policy and the use of military, is that it's not a one-handed effort. It's two hands. If you're going to go in swinging with one hand, you have to be able to pick up and rebuild with the other. And that seems to be the big problem and the reason why we're probably sitting here today still talking about the issues that are happening yeah, in the I Middle mean, East. As Colin Powell once said, you broke it, you own it. Yep. And that's, that, yeah, go ahead. 
I have a question is um sometimes we hear this um uh, talk about um the Bush government uh, with, along with the British they they so, sort of set set this up for oil um however according to you professor Gibson you you seem to say that um the Bush government gen- generally believed that they wanted to uh, impose a democratic government on the in, in Iraq basically so so how much is oil interest and how much is a generally uh, ideological interest well they believed uh, oil it was undoubtedly effective there's no question about it they but it wasn't for the reason that uh, that I think most people believe most people especially I was alive and well during the lead up to the war as I mentioned before most people at that time were like they're just going in there to steal their oil Curiously enough, American companies did not get very many oil contracts from the Iraqi government uh, in the aftermath. Everyone thought they were going to, but they didn't. Uh, but the reason why oil is a factor is, and you, you can hear uh, there was officials that said this at the time, they thought that the oil was going to pay for the reconstruction. They were like, this is going to pay for itself, I believe was what uh, Paul Wolfowitz said. Problem was, American taxpayers paid for it. Uh, the oil, the oil revenue, did not work out the way that the U.S. believed it would. Um, it, they had kind of. It was another example of them just kind of misleading themselves into making poor decisions uh, at, at the expense of the American taxpayer. Um, so, oil was a factor, uh, and it was certainly an important one in the minds of the policymakers at the time. But in the end, it didn't work out the way the Americans believed that it would. Uh, and it ended up kind of hurting them because the Iraqi government, once they had con- sovereignty or control over their country, they were like, we're not giving American companies uh, oil contracts. So uh, it didn't, it, it kind of, that's it's kind of an example of, of something blowing back on them. Where they believed it was going to be A, and it turned out to be B. So in other words, you're saying that oil is an imperative, but almost a secondary imperative. In other words, this is how we're going to pay for it all. That's what they thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, they thought that it was going to it was going to cover the bill. And Iraq has a ton of oil. But after decades of sanctions against the Iraqi oil industry in particular during the 1990s and a, uh, an eight year long war prior to that, mm-hmm. and it's not like the Iranians weren't targeting uh, Iraq's oil industry because yeah. that was the one method that Iran had that could hurt the Iraqi government uh, deeply. So the oil industry by 2003 was decrepit and in need of repairs, and the U.S. didn't anticipate that it was going to cost way more to, to do that than it would be to, uh, like there, there was no money left over to repair these things to pay for the reconstruction of the country, which is why I think $2 trillion uh, American was spent on reconstruction and the Iraqis today don't have anything like they're the like there's rolling blackouts in the city uh which is awful in the summer especially because it's hot yeah you're looking at uh 50 degrees celsius uh or 120 degrees fahrenheit in the middle of the summer and if you have power for four hours a day how do you keep your food sanitary how do you keep mm-hmm. um how do you keep your air conditioning running like none of the, most people are using their own generators that they've got on the black market, or um, and then using you know stolen oil to 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 run these generators, which emits massive amounts of pollution because it's not refined. 
so like you're looking at at a situation that that is just awful um and then throw isis into the mix and the collapse of the iraqi government in in 2014 uh 2013-2014 and like those poor people those poor people they can't catch a break unless you're the kurds living in the north where they live in uh security actually kurdistan is a fascinating place i was there not that long ago and i have never felt more safe in the middle east than i did there Hmm. Um, which is a curious uh, very unexpected I was pretty certain that I could be sitting at a cafe in Airbill, uh, working on my computer. I could leave my computer and my phone on the table. I could go to the bathroom. I could go for a walk around the block, and I'd come back, and I'd still be there. Wow. Yeah. Um, it, 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 the Kurdish region, which gained uh, autonomy from the Iraqi government after the 1991 war, um, is it's a completely different place than the rest of the country. Hmm. It's very safe. It's very stable. Um, it's very secure Uh, it has had ISIS attacks but the United States has had way more and they were next door neighbors to them so uh, the Kurdish region in the north is actually uh, this kind of rare bastion of stability inside Iraq uh, that has led a lot of Iraqis to to try and relocate there uh, because it's safe Hmm. and uh, but you cannot, if you're an Iraqi, you cannot enter Iraqi Kurdistan unless a local Kurd vouches for your, uh, that you're a good person who's not going to disrupt the harmony that they've achieved. So, Interesting. Um, just, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was one thing that, you know, we were touching on there in the invasion in two, two, uh, 2003. The one thing that always struck me was a character like Colin Powell, who... Yeah is not an ideologue who without a doubt is a career soldier and therefore would be obedient. Um, But he went along with the weapons of mass destruction and he wasn't fooled by it. You know, in other words, he wasn't duped. What do you make, if anything, of the fact that he went along? Is he simply an obedient soldier or do you think maybe there's a different calculation to why he was... Uh, why you went along with it wholeheartedly, if you will. There's two factors there. One, yes, his being a soldier, and uh, when the, he serves at the pleasure of the president. The president orders him to do something, like go go to the UN and try and sell the war to the uh, mm-hmm. United Nations. Um, he will do it. Now, what's really interesting is that he's talked about this several times before, about how uh, in the lead-up to that speech, he was like, Give me all of the evidence that you have. Uh, he demanded it from the Department of Defense, from the CIA, and from the State Department of Intelligence and the White House. Now, what's important to understand is how manipulative the Department of Defense was. In this. So Donald Rumsfeld wanted the war. Mm. He wanted to be able to test out his new lightning uh, forces, the striker brigades and stuff like that. He wanted to test that out. Uh, and show that the United States could win and defeat a, a million-man army on a shoestring. Uh, and they did. They absolutely thumped them in, in 2003. But just because you win the first round of the war, does, uh, the no. first round of the fight, doesn't mean you won the war. Um, so Rumsfeld, uh, along with Wolfowitz and others, have been discovered to have taken establishing their own intelligence operation inside the department of defense 
where they hand-selected intelligence, a raw intelligence. So just to clarify, uh, actually here, why, why don't you, uh, what is yeah. the difference between raw intelligence and intelligence? Okay, the idea is remember that intelligence is a process. Okay, in other words, it's the product of a process. Uh, you know, it, it, it goes back a long time. I mean, you have, you know, you go back to Clausewitz, the idea of information in war can be dangerous if, if it's not properly handled and packaged and sifted. And so as a result, intelligence isn't intelligence until it is sifted, weighed, analyzed, and then presented. So in other words, it's like getting a whole bunch of different messages coming in and it's just clogging your head as a commander. You need somebody to take it, make sense, sit down with the commander for 20 seconds and go, this is what it all means. So what you're mentioning is the fact that he was at, they were actually picking out or cherry picking, if you will, the details that were coming out before the analysis was done. And then as a result, they were then creating their own stew. <laughs> it's probably the best yeah. way of putting it. And then presenting a, a, a picture of reality. Yeah, exactly. People so, who don't understand the sources, they don't understand the strengths, the weaknesses, and they're not used to putting everything into a picture. In other words, it's what we call in, in, in military and in the intelligence game, they were situating the appreciation as opposed to appreciating the situation. So in other words, they already had a preconceived notion of what they wanted and they were just picking out, cherry picking the raw, uh, the raw uh, intelligence, the raw data, and then just throwing it in and then creating their own. Yeah, it's kind of like people who believe that the earth is flat. They, they're ignoring all of the intelligence that is saying, no, we have got a lot of data, a lot, including people in space that can see the planet rotate. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And they're, they're yeah. saying, yeah, 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 that, 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 that doesn't fit with my preconceived notion of the world being flat, so I'm going to ignore all of that. So, and the same thing with Welcome people who don't want to wear masks. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're seeing this play out today. Is exactly what we're talking about. It's uh, having a preconceived notion, and in this case, they believe that he had weapons of mass destruction, even though the intelligence community was saying, no, uh, we don't believe that he, we are uncertain, but we think that he might actually just be playing us. Uh, and it's important to understand, like, Iraq, the only reason why it won the Iran-Iraq war was because it used chemical weapons to stop those 300,000 troops coming at them. The Iranians could have beat them if the Iraqis didn't have that. Now, think about that. They fought for eight years. And in the aftermath, uh, Saddam adopted a policy that's known as strategic deception, kind of like what the Israelis did with their planes flying towards Egypt. He, the fact of the matter is, is that he could not say, I do not have weapons of mass destruction. Now, Henry, why do you think he would do that? Well, if he said that, he's basically lost his um, power, power control in, in the region, right? Yeah. But so he doesn't have these weapons that protected him from Iran. And suddenly he says, I don't have it. What does that mean to Iran? So Iran could technically go in and take back what they lost during the first war. Well, it means that Iraq has no defense. It means it's weak. It means that Iran could throw 300,000 troops at the Iraqi border and plow through the Iraqis and take Baghdad. So Saddam was purposely being deceptive. And actually, uh, we now know that he actually had sent uh, messages to the Bush administration by his foreign minister, Tariq Aziz, saying, hey, 
we don't actually have the weapons. We can't say that we don't have the weapons because Iran will invade, and we can't let that happen, and you don't want that to happen. But the Bush administration ignored that in favor of uh, Ahmed Chalabi, who was uh, he was one of their sources. He was saying, oh, no, he's got these mobile labs. He's got all this crazy stuff. And this guy, the CIA had concluded long ago, prior to this, this guy's a pathological liar who will say anything to get what he wants. Hmm. So that's Ahmed Chalabi, whose uh, code name was Snowball. So this guy was giving Rumsfeld and the Department of Defense the information that they wanted, bypassing the CIA, who was like, this guy's a liar, don't believe him. Bypassing the State Department, who was also like, this guy's a liar, don't believe him. And they're taking that information, and instead of having intelligence analysts go over and make sure, like, is Chalabi a, a liar? Is, like, we think he's a liar. Okay, and we don't have other evidence that supports what he's saying, so we don't believe that what he's saying tr is true. That would be a normal analysis. That would be a, the intelligence process. They would talk to him, they'd polygraph him, they'd be like, this guy's a liar, he's lying to us, he's not telling us the truth. And they would determine what is true or what is not, and then they would pass the intelligence, not the raw intelligence coming from this liar, to the intelligence um, agencies who would uh, then pass it up to policymakers and be like, or not. If the intelligence is incorrect or they've proven this guy to be a liar, they're not going to, it's not going to make it across Bush, uh, Bush's desk because the guy's a liar. You're not going to hand over information from a known liar to the president to make a decision. Yeah. You want him to have the verified information so that he can make the best decision based on the information available. So what the what Rumsfeld was doing was bypassing the intelligence review process or the intelligence vetting process and then handing that information to the president as if it was vetted and true mm -hmm. so the president and his advisors are making decisions based on information that is patently false so do you see why why that is is a really big yeah. problem and, and can, can lead to decisions that were being made that weren't weren't uh, that, that it's just like people not wearing masks who are ignoring the reality that covid is dangerous yeah, or, there's. Also, uh, or, I know it, it, you're right. It's it's like not listening to Fauci, the Who, and everybody else in there, but to find somebody who you know has uh, you know a stake in um, you know some you know quack <laughs> cure. I mean, that's essentially all they want to do is put money. But th there's something else that you brought up there, which actually, it, it, you know, strikes my imagination is the fact that this over reliance on human intelligence. In other words, this is not the way the game is played. Um, human intelligence has been discredited for many years. In other words, using spies and espionage and one person and whatever else. Um, this was discredited coming out of World War II. The Germans ended up relying on it, much to their detriment. In other words, you know, the Western Allies had concluded long ago that humans are not the best when it comes to doing assessments and you know giving you the scoop because like with this particular uh, asset, if you will, um, he was working a pathological liar who was just looking to line his own pocket or make his own fame. 
usually it's multi-layering. You've got electronic intelligence, signals intelligence, code breaking, you have imagery intelligence, satellite intelligence, and you mix all of these together. So in other words, yeah, so you don't need this one person coming up and saying, oh no, Saddam has this, Saddam has that. Oh no, no, no. You can be doing imagery intelligence to see where these things are and what kind of, you know, how they're developing. You have electronic intelligence or, um, which could be picking up or, or, you know, cluing in on the hydro grids that are necessary. And then of course you have signals intelligence, whether it's be cell phones or their, you know, traditional line of communications. There's so many different types of intelligence sources that come into that. So just the fact um, that they were laying it all at the feet of this one source, which tells you something, one source, let alone a human source, then either they're hiding something, which is something I've seen in World War II, where ultra and signals intelligence and whatever else or successes in that have been passed off as the success of an agent, which is always a possibility. But I would tend to agree that they were probably so blinkered in their approaches that, again, it was, it was satisficing. It was all about you know, situating that appreciation as opposed to appreciating it. So they didn't want a variety of sources. They didn't want yeah. anything that was possibly con going to contradict. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Henry, what are you most, uh, I mean, we've been on for a little while now, but uh, I, I just want to, uh, before we kind of wrap things up, I guess, this is the, the podcast host talking. <laughs> I, I do host a podcast as well called Real Footnotes, but uh, what I'm curious is, what are you most interested in the Middle East that I can help clarify for you? I think that would go way back when uh, Mohammed formed the first really Arab empire over through the old uh, Persians. And I think it started back then because that's uh, what interests me first. When I was at the Met Museum in New York, I saw a exhibition of old um, Arabian pre-Muslim pre, um, artifacts. Right, so that sparked my interest in the Middle East uh, at first. So now I'm really interested in like the whole dynamic in the Middle East, contemporary history, modern history of the Middle East since uh, World War One. Uh, so I guess if I could ask one thing about Middle East, um, it's how is the different nationalism playing out compared to, for example, Europe in 1914 or. Um, nationalism in Europe, what are, what are some of the similarities and differences between uh, Middle East and Europe? Nationalism in the Middle East in the aftermath of World War One, or even during World War One, was uh, quite nascent, uh, it, meaning that, that it wasn't fully developed yet. The, the idea of being an Arab had long existed, but the, the problem was, was that when Muhammad and uh, his successors spread out across North Africa and into Europe, Sorry, and throughout the Middle East, over towards India, and then into Europe, uh, making it uh, as far as Vienna uh, on the one hand, but also making it into France uh, and seizing control of Spain uh, on the one hand, because Spain was part of the Islamic Empire for a very long time uh, until 1453. No, 1493. Uh, Constantinople fell in 1453. Uh, so with this spread of the of the religion throughout the, the Middle East, it kind of created a, a geopolitical dynamic between the Muslim world and the Christian West right, in Europe. Now, 
in term in the aftermath of World War II, uh, nationalism, uh, Turkish nationalism had kind of had existed and emerged in the aftermath with Ataturk and the formation of Turkey, the Turkish Republic. But when you look at the other nations, uh, they weren't Turks, and they knew they weren't Turks, and they knew they were Arabs, uh, and some of them weren't even really, uh, they spoke Arabic and read Arabic, if they were literate, uh, but Arabic was their language uh, throughout much of the Arab world, but they were always dominated by Turks who spoke a different language. And so they knew they were different, but the whole concept of an Arab nation uh, was mainly something that highly educated uh, Arabs, uh, you know, sat around smoking hookah discussing, right? You're, you're not getting, uh, you know, you're not getting the street, as they, they say, the Arab street, uh, really into this because being Arab didn't, it wasn't really part of their identity. And also being an Iraqi, a Jordanian, and all of these different new countries that suddenly were created also weren't part of their identity. Um, they were usually, uh, local identities were much more important than uh, the national identity or regional identity. Those things began to change with the advent of, say, the radio, um, uh, especially during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s when uh, radio Cairo was, which of course Nasser controlled and used as a main uh, main means of disseminating the ide ideology of Arab nationalism. He used the radio to do that, but like in Europe, a lot of those ideas would have been transmitted through writing because Europeans had modern education systems. Not everyone was literate, but the literacy rates were far, far, far greater than in the Middle East. And so in the Middle East, um, kind of like in the Middle Ages in Europe, you learn most of what you learn through the local mosque, through uh, the, the sort of education that you get uh, from other people, but you're not getting it from, from books, typically. And so the concept of nationalism began to evolve as the local, the new mandate states, which with the British and French overlords, um, if you want to develop a national identity that didn't exist before, how do you do, how do you think you do that? Like, how do you create an identity? How do you create an Iraqi out of an Arab who lived in the desert? Propaganda. Propaganda is, is one way to call it. Another thing is called education. So, you create an education system. You develop schools. You send kids to schools. You teach them how to read and write. And once you once you give them the tools, especially reading, and writing comes obviously naturally with that, but you teach them how to read, and suddenly literature is open. Mm -hmm. And so some of these writers who had written thoughts about national Arab nationalism, the idea of Arab identity, is able to be disseminated to these people, but it doesn't happen immediately. Like if you took every Canadian in Canada and made them illiterate today, how long would it, and the whole idea of a Canadian national identity how long do you think it would take for that identity to occur? Not overnight. It takes a generation. It means the kids who are born uh, at the start of this process and get educated throughout the whole education system, they have to become adults. They have to be able to, and learning to read and write and things like that. So if this process started in 1920, let's say, or let's say it's 1922, uh, early 1920s, well, by the 1940s, those people have grown up. 
those people are Jamal Abdel Nasser. Those people are uh, Abdel Karim Qasim, who led Iraq. They're, they're the, the nationalist leaders that when Israel suddenly burst onto the scene and defeated them militarily and defeated their kind of monarch leaders who were really terrible at what they did. They were just incompetent, uh, you know, fat dudes who sat around in palaces and didn't really have much interaction with their people. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm referring mostly to Farouk in Egypt. The, the monarch in, in Iraq was actually quite good uh, up until his, his untimely death in an auto accident. So uh, the evolution of, a, say, an Iraqi identity had to come from, through education and didn't really emerge until the 1940s and 1950s, which, when you see this suddenly sudden blossoming of Arab nationalism spreading throughout the region, but also you have you know, the advent of radio, where if you're illiterate, Nasser's ideas can still get to you. Yep. And that's why the people suddenly became a threat to the regimes, and you started seeing regimes fall one after another, because these literate, and in many cases illiterate people, suddenly uh, woke up and grew up and saw the issues facing them and saw that their governments weren't doing a particularly good job. Mm. And sadly, the subsequent governments didn't do much better. So, and that's why we have the problems that we have today. That's why you have huge problems in Iraq. That's why you have huge problems with Egypt. Um, and why there's a struggle between the governments and people in, in those places. Because uh, it's, it's the knock-on effects or the blowback of... Um, the policies, uh, the radical policies of the 1950s, uh, 60s, and 70s, and the chaos of the 1980s, and the chaos of the 1990s and the 2000s, it's, it's just endemic. And frankly, unless the Israel uh, situation with Palestinians is resolved, you're always going to breed radicalism because anyone can turn to that and say, well, the United States backs Israel and they just bombed Gaza again for the umpteenth time and killed kids and all of this terrible stuff that, you know, a lot of people look at and are like, man, that's, that's wrong. That's not moral. That's not right. And so it's easy for them to, to seize on to those, those grievances and become radicalized and become a threat. And then uh, when you add in things like drone attacks against, these, uh, against radical people, then all the people in that town who lost their family members and friends, they become radicalized because they now have a grievance. And so this uh, cycle of grievance and violence that exists throughout the Middle East uh, almost seems perpetual. And it, the Middle East is in great need of another Nasser-like leader mm. who can help right the ship. Uh, maybe like less authoritarian than Nasser really was, yeah, yeah. but someone with his charisma, with his ability to speak to the Arab people, be like, we need to chart a new path that moves us forward, that, that, that brings the greatness of Islam and uh, the Arab and the, and the empires that came out of um, the Muslim world. Uh, because frankly, if you look at uh, the Islamic world, uh, when the, Europe was in the Dark Ages and was like falling apart, the Islamic world was a bright light. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our... Um, like philosophy, like, uh, you know, Plato and all these like ancient Greek philosophers, 
one of the reason why we have those documents is because they were translated into Arabic because the Arabs were deeply interested in education and in science and like the first drawings of uh, the anatomy of a human eye were done in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. um, th there was a deep interest in, in education and that's been lost. Uh, a lot of it, it has because of a very conservative form of, uh, of Islam that seems to be dominating, but uh, ideologies like that wax and wane. And I think that the, the people of the Middle East uh, need to move towards a much more progressive, much more modern uh, version of Islam that is adaptable to the modern day. And it exists uh, in a lot of places, but it's... Like Lebanon, usually. Yeah. Lebanon, Lebanon stands out as, as being one of the most progressive uh, places. Like, you, uh, have you, I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but like Lebanon's, uh, it's, it's very modern. It's very European. Yeah, um, you know, uh, like this is what Beirut was always known as. Yeah, and and people, uh, you know, they they it's actually very similar to Israel in a lot of sense. Uh, you know, where people go to bars and people go out to nightclubs and they the the youth have a lot of fun and they go to the beach and they wear bathing suits instead of burkinis and uh, it's a lot more um, it's a lot more progressive. But Lebanon, that's because Lebanon has to be. Because you have Christians who are very European-minded, and then you have Muslims who are very uh, Middle Eastern-minded, and that dynamic has actually led to a lot of compromise in Lebanon, which the rest of the Middle East doesn't doesn't do well at, uh, as you can see in Iraq with the, the Kurds and the Shia and the Sunni, or in Egypt between the Copts and the and the Arabs. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's that's my hope for the future. Uh, it might be a bit naive uh, to think that, but I really do hope. Uh, I'm an optimist uh, by nature, and I, I'm really hoping that that the Middle East can can move in a more positive direction. And I think that resolving the Arab-Israeli crisis needs to be priority number one, and education needs to be priority number two. Because if you don't educate people, I'm not talking about that nationalist propaganda of the the pre uh, the interwar era i'm talking more about like actually educating people so that they uh have a shot at upward mobility in life they have a shot at um you know uh at, you know preventing their daughters from getting married at 13 and uh and not getting their education and give them uh, the tools it, well and and educate if you want if you want a tool to fight terrorism and yeah. fight radicalism Education is the only way forward. Yep, agreed. That's, that's just the reality. Well, speaking of education, um, do you have some, uh, for both of you, do you have any books or any other resources on the Middle East? Because I think it's a very ignored topic here in the West, as I personally don't hear much about it. So would you, uh, do, you uh, do you have something to recommend to our listeners? Yes. The, the best book, if you want to understand the Middle East, the best an easiest book to read is a book called uh, The History of the Modern Middle East. It's a, it's a general survey. I use it in all my Middle East courses. It's by William Cleveland, who has since passed, and I believe Martin Bunton has taken over. Uh, the, he's been putting out the more recent editions of it, uh, but building upon what uh, Cleveland had achieved uh, initially. Uh, that textbook is phenomenal. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not analytical and by any means. So it's just walking you through the history of what happened. 
it's not trying to make a profound argument or anything like that like uh, most texts uh, like most books like when I write a book I'm making an argument I'm not writing a textbook which is just this is what happened um, so that book is easily the best um, every most professors that I know who teach on the modern Middle East use it uh, another great book if you want to understand the like the origins of the Sunni Shia divide, uh, Reza Aslan, who's kind of a, a public personality, uh, he wrote a phenomenal book called uh, No God But God. And uh, I also use that with my students. If you're interested in the history of Iran, uh, kind of during and leading up to the, the revolution, uh, James A. Bill has a phenomenal book uh, on actually it's kind of more US Iran relations and that book is called The Eagle and the Lion and another phenomenal 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 book on uh, on Iran is by a guy named Michael Axworthy um, and his book is called Revolutionary Iran now uh, Axworthy is uh, he's amazing uh, sadly he, he passed away from cancer a few years ago and uh, he was a friend of mine uh, but he gets Iran. He lived there when he was a kid. He speak, he spoke Persian um, and so he could use a lot of Iranian sources uh, in the writing of this book. But he, he absolutely understands the, the country and um, he did a very, very, very good job writing that book. I, I It's just great reading. I, I strongly recommend it to anyone who wants okay. to understand that very complex uh, and fascinating country. Uh, let me try and think. I mean, the uh, other one, Iraq, yeah, the other one that I, you know, that I've seen many times because it sits on my bookshelf like a giant paperweight, is Fisk's Fisk's uh, yes. contemporary. What was it? Uh, contemporary Middle East Wars or or the War of Civilization? I forget what it is now. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Great War of Civilization. I mean, this is you know, <laughs> if you want to get into the detail of it, but. Yeah. Then again, what do you, I mean, you teach this, uh, this is not my area of specialty, so I always defer, you know, certainly would defer to you. Where do you feel Fisk would fit in in this? Um, the Great War of Civilization, that deals, deals more with World War One, doesn't it? It looks at all, I, I, I right, read from, that book. right from 15 till the current day, and it takes a look at all the conflicts. Wow. So it really is kind of, uh, I, I guess you could say it's like a reference touchstone, if you will. But I just wasn't yeah, sure. Uh, well, there's a similar book by uh, a former CIA uh, analyst who also worked in the White House for a long time called Arabs at War. It's by Kenneth Pollack. Now, that book is awesome. It, uh, I don't think there's an updated version of it, but it essentially follows through. It's a, it's a study of military analysis of every conflict that every major uh not even major every state in the middle east has engaged in wow. so it's got uh several chapters on which each each conflict on egypt on iraq on israel on uh and so it looks at each of the conflicts uh and analyzes their military maneuvers their their strategies how they adapted and changed over time uh after facing defeat for example um so kenneth pollock's arabs at war is amazing Okay. Uh, if you're interested in military policy, um, that's really, really quite good. Um, I have a book on, uh, I have two books on Iraq. Uh, if we're going chronologically in terms of the era that it deals with, my second book, uh, which is called Sold Out, uh, U.S. Foreign Policy, Iraq, the Kurds, and the Cold War, 
that one deals with kind of the 1960s and 1970s uh, and a bit of the 1950s. My second book, my first book that I wrote was uh, called Covert Relationship, and that deals with the Iran-Iraq War. Mm. And right now I'm working on a project that deals with the Iraq War, where we're kind of analyzing it from um, strategic, logistical, and tactical levels, um, which should be interesting. But that, that project is uh, just beginning, so we've got mm. a lot of work to do on that one. That's part of the think tank, I take it? No, it's not part of a think tank. It's um, we're developing it uh, right now. We're, we're working with the Wilson Center to arrange a series of, of conferences that we're going to use uh, to gather source material to build into uh, a, a, basically a trilogy of books. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it should be. It, it's really fun, and uh, we've garnered some interesting uh, some interest from some pretty big players like H.R. McMaster, mm-hmm. um, who I randomly met at AHA this year <laughs> and uh, we've been in contact ever since uh, but yeah those are the those are the main books um, if you're looking for more conceptually Douglas Little has a book called uh, uh, Orientalism but it's not like Edward Said's book on that same topic but um, yeah, I mean there's I can tell you books after book after book yeah yeah it sounds like Oh, a really good one on Saudi Arabia is Andrew Scott Cooper called uh, Oil Kings. And that's kind of Saudi Arabia, Iran, and their dynamic uh, in the 1970s uh, up to kind of close to the present. And that, that book's phenomenal. I loved reading that one. Uh, that's kind of, that was, for me, was a holiday reader uh, where I just couldn't put it down. Uh, much to my wife's displeasure, she's like, yeah. we're on holiday. Stop reading that book. But it, it was uh, it's a fantastic book to read. Um, oh, another good book uh, is uh, Peter Mansfield. He's got a, a great text called uh, you know, The Middle East or uh, something along those lines. Uh, I can't remember offhand. But his oh, History of the Middle East, that's what it is. And he's, he's also since passed, but his book it offers a glorious sweep of history. Um, that puts a little, uh, focuses a little bit more on early Islam and the Ottoman Empire, uh, but also then gets into the narrative of the Arab Cold War up to the present, and it's it's uh, magisterial. Um, is the only way I can describe it because it's so good, uh, and that you can listen to on Audible. Uh, that's I always recommend to my students. I'm like, yeah. download the audiobook version of that. Listen to it while you're driving in the car yeah. or, or sitting on a bus or, or anything like that because being able to listen to the, the narrative, like don't take notes, just listen. Just yeah. absorb, absorb what's being said. Absorb. Re- read the Cleveland book because that's going to give you a lot of facts that you can use to write your papers, but listen to the Mansfield text because that's going to give you uh, a broader context and a lot more. Um, and, uh, but it's also just a, a nice thing to listen. Yeah. Sound advice. Yeah. So there you go, Henry. Well, well, I want to thank you both for coming on the show, for taking this long, almost two hours with me. I'm happy to. Well, I, was, knew, I knew I was going to talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think no, I learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, I Look, I'm fascinated. I'm sitting here and I, I you know, I've just attended a lecture, which I absolutely love. This is yeah, great. Me too. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm happy to help. Uh, I, I always, I, I love talking about the region. It's such a fascinating, interesting, but also tragic place. Um, but if people don't know it and don't understand it, uh, how can we possibly ever uh, expect it to improve? And, and how can we help it? How can we not make decisions like invading Iraq uh, that are based on information that is completely false? So, uh, and the only way we can do that is by arming ourselves with knowledge. If I can help in any way in doing that, I'm happy to uh, to do so. But thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for coming here. And thank you, uh, Professor uh, David O'Keefe, for also being here and attending to this very interesting lecture podcast uh, mix. Um, so yeah, th thank you all for coming. Want to hear more from Addendum Marianopolis? Find all our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. This episode was edited by Gerlando Garaggi, a proud executive of Addendum Marianopolis. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you in the next episode.